welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone. I'm here today with Benjamin Freud. Benjamin is the co-founder of Coconut Thinking. He creates learning and action experiences where all learners have a common purpose, positive impact on the welfare of the bio-collective, any living thing, sentient or plant that has an interest in the healthfulness of the planet. Benjamin has a Master of Science in Education, a Master of Arts in International Relations, an MBA in International Business, and a PhD of Philosophy with a focus in history. He also has over seven years in education, both in the classroom and as a school leader. Welcome, Benjamin. I'm so happy to chat with you today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really excited. So you are taking on PBL and working towards the SDGs all to a new level. So can you tell us about your mission to empower students to not only have a positive impact within their lives and their world, but on the bio-collective of the planet through purpose-driven learning? Sure. Um, there's a lot of words in there, right? SDGs, purpose-driven, <laughs> bio-collective. So I'll, I'll unwrap them. You know, the sustainable development goals, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I, I'm in a state of flux about how I feel about them because I don't know if they actually go far enough. I think it's nice as an anchor and people kind of come together around them. They think, oh yeah, it's, it's a safe place. But really when you unpack the SDGs, you see that they're very corporate driven. Uh, this idea of sustainable growth seems to me a contradiction. This idea of perpetual growth seems to me a contradiction with sustainability. And I'm not sure it's necessarily where we need to be. I'm also thinking that if you unwrap education, the goal of education and, and some of the targets, the word nature never comes into play. It's all about preparing kids for the world of work. But I think that what we need to solve some of the big problems will be really education about how to be with one another, how to live a more regenerative lifestyle rather than sustainable. And this idea of sustaining, I'm, I'm not sure we need to sustain. I, I don't want to sustain where we're going. I, I, I kind of want to have us be a little bit more focused on, on life. So moving forward in some of these words, um, the biocollective is something that, that my wife, Charlotte and I, who's the uh, co-founder uh, as well of Coconut Thinking, is, is just really moving along a hierarchy of beings and hierarchy of life. If we think about who we are as individuals, maybe as a group, moving further up, maybe as a species, moving up, maybe as sentient being, anything that is alive is part of the biocollective. Anything that has an interest in the healthfulness of the planet. Because ultimately, some of the things that separate us, if we go one more level, we all, everyone, every human, every living being has an interest in the healthfulness of the planet. So how can we act to make sure we have a healthy planet. So what we try to do at Coconut Thinking and what we try to do in the school is, is work towards that. I'm not entirely sure that we get there all the time, but we get to this idea of thinking about regeneration, thinking about how we can focus on fighting entropy, right? That's what life is about, is about fighting entropy, about the chaos. It's about trying to, to bring life back, make it a better experience for, for learners in terms of vitality, in terms of connections, in terms of everything that makes us alive, not just as humans, but as as uh, people on the planet. So that's some of the projects that we tried to do and, and the efforts that we tried to get to. 
but we're working towards that because regeneration is, is very complex and um, something that I think, you know, we, we won't necessarily get to because I still drive to get to work, that kind of situation. <laughs> That's an interesting point. I think you're the first person that I've heard or talked to that has kind of put a damper on the SDGs. From my perspective, I think they were designed to create kind of a blueprint and a, a base layer of where to go so that we could all agree on something as a globe, you know, internationally. Um, but you're right, they are fairly corporate driven and based on sustainability. And only three of those SDGs have anything to do with the natural world. Life on the water, clean air, and life on, on Earth or something like that. Only three of them. The other 13 or 14, because one of them is about bringing it all together, are all human-driven. It's an anthropocentric model. It is one that is designed by, let's face it, the leaders, who are the same ones who sign all these packs that they don't follow. So I wonder if, other than a poster, if any action really is going to be taken. I, I, I really don't think anybody's going to meet these goals. And again, if you unpack them, it is a lot about trying to get some of the I don't want to like to use the word developing world because I think it's, it's, it's a very loaded term, but the, the idea of, of some of the countries that might not be as industrialized, I don't know what the word is in 2021 for using this, but trying to get those caught up. But we don't want them caught up because if all those countries were to live the kind of lifestyle that we have, then the planet is doomed. Simple as that. So I, I'm, a, I'm in flux with the SDGs. It's a nice anchor. It's nice and safe, but it will not get us to where we need to be. So how do we work towards where we need to be? You know, what are you working with with students to make things more equitable for the entire bio collective? It, again, it's a it's an upwards battle because we only get them for a few hours a day and we are fighting an entire uh, consumer lifestyle. So I'm in Thailand, so we get a whole bunch of different nationalities here. And the common thread is is unfortunately an idea of consumerism and and how, you know, people are buying and these kids, you know, they want this, they want that. And I think that's what most of the planet is going to be like, probably 99.9% .9 of us are consumer. I mean, I, I just ordered a package from, from somewhere, right? And, and it has to be shipped. So again, it's working with this tension within me of, of you can say something, but our actions are, are always a bit, um, there's, there's always going to be a gap and that's, that's quite frustrating. But what we do is we try to get the kids to, to work as a community, having that community within the students and also working on projects that only benefit the community. So we talk about PBL and PBL is, is, is wonderful. I know your, your listeners are going to be quite familiar with PBL and, and the work that you do, but working towards actions that have impact on the community. So what that means is we're rethinking the way assessment is done. So that assessment doesn't happen at the point where we're assessing a kid's ability in literacy or math or whatever, but on the impact that they have, on the contribution that they have on the community. Give you an example. Let's say uh, we're, we're right now one of the one of the classes that we're doing. We're, we're doing organizing a walkathon with a junior school student for a, a local uh, animal charity. So it's all about based in math, and we're going to be working with budgets and numbers and ratios and you know distance and all that. So that's great. You got you have curriculum piece. But what's really interesting here is the impact that the walkathon will have on the animals. Specifically, how does the money? How is that transformed into action to help the animals? And if we can measure that somehow, then that's really the richness of the project. It's not so much their learning isolated, but it's how they can contribute to that community. Another example might be, we are designing a brochure made by middle school students for prospective middle school students. So that's kind of building the, the, the brand and the community of the school. But the real 
impact is how has that swayed kids to come to the school? That's what's matter. So, so it's working on a different level of, of assessment beyond the skills, how their contribution is going to the community. And what that does is it hopefully the, the goal is to get kids to realize that their actions do matter and that their actions have an impact and they don't exist just in themselves. And, and that is rethinking the way assessment is done to think about the audience that is involved, not just the work in isolation. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of project based learning. A lot of people in the project-based learning world talk about creating authentic experiences and making sure that you have an authentic audience and you're creating these things. But I think so many of us are looking at the skills. What skills did they learn? Did they, you know, from a curricular standpoint, but also from a collaborative and, you know, interconnected standpoint, are they working together? Are they problem solving? How are they doing these things? But there are a lot fewer people actually looking at the impact that we can create with that. And how does that work? And how can we as elementary or middle or high school students really make an impact not only in our community, but on the animals and on the world around us? You were talking about the walkathon and the impact on the animals. At first, I thought you were talking about like the place where they were going to have the walkathon and what would that do to the environment if you had, you know, a number of students walking on a track for a certain amount of time, what happens to the grass, what happens to the insects, what happens to the animals in that space? That's cool too. Yeah. And then the other piece is, you know, you're raising money and how do you use that to make an impact? And, and how do the animals benefit? And it, was it worth it? Is there some kind of weird return on investment for that? Are there other ways? I'm thinking, you know, in the software world, um, they have something called a net promoter score. So you might have come across it sometimes. How likely would you be to recommend this product to a friend and you've got a scale from zero to 10? And that's actually something called a net promoter score where they get, you know, a, a promoter, someone who's neutral and a detractor. And based on that score, which goes from negative 100 to 100, you evaluate how effective or how good or how, how, how good the product is or what's going on. So if, if we can use net promoter scores, for instance, for some of these projects, you get a certain score. How can we reiterate the project, change it, make it so that we improve people's likelihood to uh, recommend uh, a project, a solution, an idea? It has to be tweaked to the PBL world, but I think you can see where I am about, can we put something out there? We measure the impact and then how can we improve it? And that's where the real learning happens. How do we improve it at the point of the audience? Yeah. I mean, then you're also bringing in design thinking models of we created this thing, we iterated, we tried it. How can we improve it? And also the self-assessment and reflection piece of PBL, which I think sometimes goes missing in a lot of projects. What did we actually do here? What did we learn? Is this what we set out to learn? Is this the impact we set out to have? And how can we make it better next time? That's right. So in projects that you're working with, you're not only working to build future ready skills, but also future saving ethics, as we've been talking about, practicing eco reciprocity, standing up for justice, sharing with solidarity, and of course, acting with kindness. Can you show a few other examples of maybe schools, you know, that you're working with now or that you've worked with in the past of projects that really show those values? I think once you go towards the community and, and you, you practice this idea of generosity, uh, I think that fosters kindness. Kindness is really what, what I'm beginning to think is really the only thing that matters. And that's probably be the, the number one standard. Are we kind? And, and if you don't pass that test, then what we're doing may not be worth it. And the reason I think this is because of the contribution that we have again to the community. But kindness is the one thing that no matter where we come from, no matter what the color of our skin or socioeconomic background, where we live in the world, everyone has the ability to be kind. 
you might not be able to access your class on a top end Mac computer. You might not be able to, you know, go on a class trip. All these things that, that we're limited by because of, of, of our background. But the one thing that we can do is kindness. And that should be the minimum floor for any project. So some of the things that we do are just that, like contributing to the community with the animals, trying to build that kind of empathy, trying to understand where they're coming from. There's a lot of stray dogs here in Thailand and, and trying to be kinder towards those animals. We did a project with using biochar and trying to think about how in the community we can, we can put carbon back into the earth. Uh, that's about being kind towards the earth. It's really just the minimum, the minimum standard. And, and that eco reciprocity is about that. It's about working towards not sustaining but but working with the earth working with our communities to, to be as much givers as we are takers and if we can even be more in terms of, of generosity than we are with takers and when we think about generosity as, as something that could be giving our time giving money sure but but more importantly giving our care um, those are the things that we try to do in class that we try to do with these projects but again we're working towards those things i'm not going to say that we're always you know glorious uh, in, in everything that we do. But those are the emphases that we try to do. Just that kindness. I wrote a piece not too long ago about having a curriculum of kindness. Wouldn't it be great if the ultimate measure, the ultimate assessment was how kind we were? And that could be layered in terms of sophistication. So how a first grader would be kind would be different than, for instance, how an 11th grader would be kind. Because everything that goes into the projects and the impact of kindness would be different. Whether it is to help a dog, you know, wash a dog or something like that, that is accessible for a younger kid. An older kid might be able to do that, but at the right level of challenge for that child, it could be something like coming up with some kind of new dog food that uses local ingredients, right? Using biology and business and all these other disciplines. So we can put that on a progression, but wouldn't it be great if everything was ultimately the main assessment, the only assessment that, that really matters is how kind we are and measuring kindness as the, the final point of all these other skills that, that can take place. Yeah, that would be incredible. From an assessment point of view, I go to how on earth would we do that? And, you know, I think one of the ways that we assess so much is because it's the easy way to assess. Like I can assess you on whether or not you know the history of Thailand. It's harder to assess you on how kind you are. But I love what you said about practicing generosity fosters kindness. And how can we be more generous and more giving? And going back to the beginning conversation about the SDGs and how we're all consumers and we're all taking, taking, taking. But if instead of taking, we can be more generous towards the earth and start to give that back, we can start to move towards a space of healing instead of a continued space of sustainable, slow degradation, I guess is what we're doing <laughs> to the planet. And in some cases, not so slow. <laughs> not so slow. And so many generations have said that this is the final, the apocalypse. I mean, it has happened throughout the centuries. I mean, since Cassandra, but, but really, this might be it, right? Let's reframe this a little bit. The content of the skills that we have only matter if they are put to action, if we do something with those contents and skills. If it's just to have them and have a project, that's great, but we have to go one step further. So how can we take the history of Thailand or how can we take... Uh, being able to understand, uh, I don't know, I mean, whatever it might be, you know, the, the, the rules of government or whatever it might be, but, but take that, those contents and skills of collaboration and apply it towards something, apply it towards acts of kindness. So we're still under the hood working with the skills and the content and, and all those wonderful things, but the actions we take have to be for kindness. 
And they can't just be for, for vanity projects or for indulgence or anything like that. It just makes a different shift. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're giving me a new goal for our school. One of our graduate standards is influencing action. So how do we take the concepts and the skills that we learn and use that to influence action in the world around us? One of our projects, we went out and did a little protest march where the kids made cardboard posters and we marched down to City Hall, which is a couple blocks away, and they gave speeches in front, just learning how to use their voice and learning how to share their opinion in the world. And that was all centered around social justice and creating an opportunity for them to share what they have learned, but also to work towards making a difference in the world. And these are ways we can make a difference. But when you frame that with kindness, how can we use that influencing action to be more kind towards others, towards the planet, towards all plants and animals? It gives a much bigger picture. And social justice is such an important part of kindness. I mean, it, it, it sounds so evident and so obvious and so simple, but it, but it really is. It comes from kindness, wanting to level out the, the injustices. Yeah. When you envision the future of school, what would your utopian education look like? I wouldn't have any assessments or I'll flip it another way. Everything would be assessed. I really believe in authentic, you know, mixed mode assessment. And that is every interaction we have is a way to assess learning. And by that, I mean, we get feedback. If a kid has his head in his hands, if they're yawning, if they're excited, you are getting feedback from them, right? And the way you react with a smile, with a frown that they're getting through. So assessment and our relationship with assessment happens all the time. It's not, it's not just on a test or on a project or anything like that. And we could talk about assessment of learning as learning you know, or learning, whatever we want. But really, any kind of interaction is some form of assessment or an opportunity to give feedback in order to improve performance in the future. A anything can be taken like that. And so if we got rid of these tasks of these milestones that are so high stakes, I'm not saying get rid of them completely, but the ones that are high stakes and start thinking about how we can work as a community, we might be able to feel our way through learning. And I know that's quite controversial because, you know, learning is seen as such a cognitive experience, but it's also an emotional experience. And Parents know when their kids are learning and they don't need to give them a test. You live around San Francisco. Let's say you take a road trip to, I don't know, you take a road trip to Washington, D.C. You're walking around with your kids and you're saying, oh, look how beautiful the Washington Monument is. Oh, the Lincoln Memorial, it's so gorgeous. And then may or may not stick. But you know if they got something from that trip by what they volunteer, by their openness. They might say, oh, it was so awesome how there was that uh, the, the beautiful cherry blossoms uh, in Washington. And that's my, not necessarily what you wanted them to see or thought about, but they noticed it. And you know, as the parent, if they've learned something, because you're close to them, you've got a connection, a relationship. And I think that if we develop relationships with all learners, we can tell if they're learning and help them at every single point to improve performance or to try to be better or to think about things in different ways. And so the schools would be just all about that, about building communities, working on projects towards regeneration. And I would even love it if middle school and high school didn't have disciplines, but had homeroom teachers, just like in junior school. One person who was responsible for bringing in all the specialists, a little bit like a contractor for your house, uh, who brings in, you know, the plumber and the electrician and the painter, and they organize everything rather than having a plumber and electrician and a painter who's going who to build your house. That would be a disaster. So one homeroom teacher really connects with those kids and brings in people from the community, people, you know, the science teacher, the art teacher, 
to work on that project as and when is needed. Maybe for three hours, maybe for no hours. That to me would be absolutely beautiful. And then it would just all be about the community and about the relationships and the learning would happen from there as and when is needed. And just one more thing, there wouldn't be probably as much of an emphasis on, on say, traditional things like writing. Uh, I love writing. I, I, I absolutely do. But kids also need to know their way around a microphone and a video camera. That is also text. Working towards so many different ways of, of using text rather than always, you know, working towards writing, 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 um, because it's more about thinking than it is about and communication rather than it's about the written form. Just things like that, just being fluent and flexible. Yeah, we talk a lot about that when we look at projects and when we look at what kids are learning in the classroom, like what do they need to be learning through this? Like we're having them write this thing. Is it about handwriting? Is it about the creative process? Is it about sharing what they've learned? Is it about, you know, what is it that we're looking to get? Because all of the media is really important. You know, I didn't grow up with any of this. I never learned how to use any of it as a kid. It wasn't part of my classroom. Right. I learned how to type on a typewriter with actual carbon copies <laughs> that you printed out when you CC'd. But our kids and our students need to know how to use all of this. And especially for some of the kids who really have trouble with handwriting, learning how to type at a young age, like takes that out of the equation. Sure, they're going to still need to know how to write notes and things and handwriting's not going anywhere. But there's lots of different ways to communicate. And so what's our end goal with education and what's our end goal with any given project? Yeah, it's an important thing to look at. So with you, what's the most effective way of communication? You don't communicate with with me as you do with with some of your third graders. And so we have to adjust it towards the audience. I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. What is the most effective way? How are you going to have the most impact? And how can you do it in the kindest way? That's right. Do we need to be using paper every time we're writing something or is it actually more kind to use the computer or the electronics? Exactly. And given the way computer and electronics are manufactured, I actually don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> right? And this goes back to this idea of working towards your generation because the only way we're going to live a completely regenerative lifestyle is if we go live in the woods making our own clothes made out of sustainable eucalyptus. I don't know. Uh, because we are all consuming at some point and how do we reconcile our desire to be good to the earth, good towards each other with the fact that we have to use fossil fuels. We, you know, this computer that we're using, exactly. I mean, it's, it's not great, but we, we have to use it. So, so there's always going to be that tension, which I guess is part of the, the human condition to have to reconcile the tensions of what, of our ideals and our actions. But how do we become more generous and give back more than we're taking out? Mm -hmm. And to each other as well. Yeah. So the last question that I love to ask everyone, because I run an elementary school, can you remember a story from your elementary school years that has stuck with you? Yeah. You know, my elementary school years were, uh, I just remember my, my fourth grade teacher who was teaching us about, you know, how many feet were in a mile. And it was 5280. And the reason I remember is because she told it through a story of, of a deck of cards. And it was something like 52 cards, eight, nothing. And that's how we remembered it. And she said at the very beginning, I will tell you a story and you will forever remember that there are 5,280 feet in a mile. And it's through the power of the story that I did remember it. Because if I had seen it in a book, I, I wouldn't have remembered it. Or it wouldn't have been so easy. But I always remember 52, 8, nothing. And that was from fourth grade. That was for, you know, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and the power of storytelling, the first way to teach has, was through stories, passing on through oral tradition. And, and I feel like stories are, are the 
best way to, to evoke emotion, to evoke illustrations, to evoke vivid pictures, to get messages across. So that stuck with me. And, and probably to this day, I'm still influenced by this idea of telling stories as the best way to communicate. How often do you need to know how far a mile is in Thailand? Um, not often. <laughs> the metrics <laughs> so that's a good question. That is a good question. Um, I don't know. That's, that's something else. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. I learned how far a mile was uh, after traveling to Denver quite a bit for business and realizing that Denver was at 5,280 feet, and that's why they called it the Mile High City. But I use it more frequently here in the States. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't use that conversion very much, but the story part of it was, was just very powerful. And she told us, I remember that. You will always remember this. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, you're in fourth grade, don't really believe it, but, but I do. Maybe actually I remember it because she said, you'll always remember it. Maybe it got something going in my brain. So maybe that's all I need to say. You can try that. Yeah, I should do. <laughs> all right, Benjamin, how can people get in touch with you? Um, very easily. They can email me at uh, Benjamin at coconut-thinking.design. They can go on our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, relatively active on LinkedIn. And those are, yeah, three, three easy ways. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.